Hey everybody, it's Ned. Welcome back to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. I was trying to think about how to start talking in this episode because my inclination too often is to say this is a really special episode, but they're all and have all been special. But this one means a lot to me and somebody else. So I'm going to go ahead and Say hi to them. Hey, Scott. Hey, Ned. So, Scott, this is good stuff that we're Mm. getting to do, and I'm feeling really grateful and glad to get this episode out into the ears of our listeners. I I feel inclined to to say what it is, but I want you to just, like, introduce introduce what's up. Yeah, well, this is an episode that we recorded – um, over a year ago, and it is an interview with Stephen Jenkinson, and you and I were huddled up in a motel room in San Francisco mm-hmm. with him, and I can still remember how precious that those couple hours felt, how changed I felt by it, and... Yeah, it's, it feels surprising and so right that it'd be now that it's time to time to share this one. Yeah. Um, was his wife like sleeping on the bed while we recorded the whole interview? Like his partner? Yeah. Is that, and, is that right? And she, totally. And I think she was like, I remember her just being so welcoming and sweet. And I find that to be maybe the the deepest form of welcoming that a person could offer is saying like, and I'm going to take care of myself don't mind me. I'm going to be under the sheets, <laughs> under the covers, <laughs> sleeping while you guys do yeah. this. It's perfect. I feel like it like softened our listening. Mm-hmm. And I think Stephen, anytime I've talked to him, it's it's a certain way of of speaking that's meditative and medicinal. And But I think I felt softened by a sleeping being mm-hmm. in that room and that it was okay. Mm-hmm. That it's just such an extraordinary way to get to hold the interview space yep. is with someone resting, napping and totally good on it. Yep. Like they're good. Yeah. It's fine. I just remember be getting out, getting out of that hotel room and us just kind of dumbfounded, dumbfounded, looking at each other, just awestruck by what it meant to share that and both be able to name it for what it was for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say, I mean, thinking of it now, there's like a really uh, strikingly pre-pandemic way Mm, um, of mm -hmm. that feeling like, oh, we were in the room together. We captured what it felt like to be in that room. Um, So different than the feeling of, you know, snagging something over Zoom or, um, uh, you know, that's obviously unique and precious also, but um, yeah, I do remember yeah. driving with that hard drive and feeling pretty like precious about it. Yeah, we. You're right. It it does feel that way. A time when we could be in person and not even having been with you in person 
like that in so long and feeling to these first episodes we put out of the podcast that it was a way during this pandemic to revisit what it felt like to be together and listen and have it in our ears like it's something live that we're that we're getting to share i feel that way listening to this and really really feeling so strongly and right about your music holding it and making connections throughout so i want to thank you for putting that time in and well, for those of you that don't know Stephen Jenkinson, I, I feel really honored that this might be a way you're getting introduced to him. Um, so that's very cool and means a lot to me. But I would say that after my mother-in-law's death, especially back in 2012, Stephen Jenkinson's work really helped me and met me where I, I was at, not just as a little boy who lost another mom, but also as a, a man who was working on holding space for grief and making room for a conversation that matters around death and dying with my community. And I remember seeing The Grief Walker. It was my earliest access point probably to Stephen Jenkinson. It's a documentary that I really highly recommend. But since then, he's put out quite a few books and there's lots of ways to access him through his education at Orphan Wisdom School. And I'll put all the links into the liner notes, but it feels really, really powerful to be able to revisit that time through this and, and certainly such a special episode because of the personal connection to, to him, but also the very matter of fact, like coolness of knowing all these years of doing you're going to die gave Scott and I the opportunity to share this moment with someone who I really greatly respect and feel called out by um, to be responsible and do this work right in the way that we deserve. And so Stephen is a teacher, an author, a storyteller, a spiritual activist, and founder of the Orphan Wisdom School, a teaching house for skills of deep living and making human culture that are mandatory in endangered, endangering times. He makes books and tends farm and mends broken handles and fences, succumbs to interviews. Mm. <laughs> I like that. These are not my words. Those are probably his. Succumbs to interviews, teaches and performs internationally. And another really cool connection is getting to meet Steven and have him show up and do his events locally and often with music. And so it feels an, another, another fitting, fitting connection to Scott, uh, you putting that music in here. Um, but let's just let, let this conversation do what it does. Um, I love you, Scott. Thank you for doing this with me. It's definitely one of the important, memorable moments of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget. And so glad to have this captured in this way. Same here. Love you too, Ned. Very, very excited for what people will get to experience through this one. All right, everybody. Take a listen to me and Scott in conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. I just think I have a, a, a responsibility to people that they don't ask for. And 
I'm not sure I learned this in the death trade, but it certainly congealed, you know, around the deathbed when I come to know mm. early on that one of the principal, what do you call it, uh, blind spots in uh, the enterprise is the belief that dying people in some fashion know something now by virtue of dying or, be, or being a dying person that they didn't know when they're out there uh, being a tiger mm. or something, you know. And this does not cash out. Mm -hmm. This is not true. Yes. But it doesn't prevent people uh, from ascribing these abilities to dying people, you know, a kind of hypersensitive, intuitive um, legitimacy that they were never able to pull off or mm -hmm. something. And, and, and so what's the etiquette that f drops down from that strange conceit? And the answer is you defer to, uh, to use a technical term from the trade, you defer to patient readiness, especially when it's a t discussion about what to talk about and when and how and how intensely and for how long and employing what language and so on. Uh, to, to uh, you know, it becomes negotiable whether you should approach a dying person as if they're dying, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. you know. So when I was there, I, I had to craft an understanding of not just candor, but of... Um, um, keeping the faith, let's put it. And so I came to characterize the, the, the strain of the arrangement as a burdensome privilege. That was my way of trying to keep before me uh, an understanding that if I do what they want, I underserve them desperately. That's the least you can say about it. Uh, more, I'm a co-conspirator in the very thing I imagine myself to be taking on instead, you see. In the name of what? In the name of being a comfort provider. Hmm. So <clears throat> this word appears over and over again in the death tape professionally and, you know, in the, in the non-schooled aspects of the thing as well. Uh, it's, it's heavily trafficked in comfort. Uh, you know, it's kind of the layman's Hippocratic Oath you know, at least comfort. So ask yourself a simple question, as I've done many times. The context is someone's dying in a death phobic culture. Translation, someone's dying in a place and a time that doesn't believe in their dying. I'm saying the culture doesn't believe in the dying of a dying person. Okay, but let's already this is a recipe for a kind of madness that will not abate. But um, then you ask the following question, how shall you propose to provide comfort to a dying person in a place and time that doesn't believe in their dying? Because that is the proposal, right? That's not a, I'm not putting a noose around the possibilities. I'm saying that's the full gamut if that's the kind of business you're in. Mm -hmm comfort provision mm -hmm. and the answer is you have to uh, if you're going to be a comfort provider you are underwriting the cultural norms that saw to it that the dying person would turn against their dying you would compromise any capacity they would have to self-identify as a dying person and to undertake dying as a moral obligation and as a, a basic artifact of their humanity. By being a comfort provider. Yeah, yeah. by being a comfort provider. Mm -hmm. 
and for all the right reasons, you do the wrong thing, mm -hmm. essentially, you know. So that understanding is not some dogma. That understanding comes from knowing what the dynamics of comfort are. Very simply, um, you ever had new shoes in your life? Hopefully, yeah. Mm. Okay, so there were many things when they were on you, but comfortable they never were. <laughs> it took a while, right? Okay, and comfort food. Comfort food is not that new thing that you tried it. You'd never call it that. You might have liked it and many other things. But comfort is a particular integer of experience. And what does it require? Precedence. That's what it requires. You are not comforted by something that appears suddenly in your life. Okay? You're comforted by something that you have associations with that can go back, you know, to childhood and even earlier if you're a new age person. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of all of that is that your comfort is derived from familiarity. Now ask yourself, how are you going to comfort a dying person? Now understand the dynamics of comfort. And the answer is, you're going to marshal legions of euphemisms and, and half-truths and half-spoken things uh, to preserve their sense of their well-being and in so doing, reimagine dying as something that could be made familiar after all. How? By talking about it like it's a poodle. By talking about it like it's something that's yours mm -hmm. to do with as you see fit. Mm -hmm. Like you're the boss. Like there's nothing to learn. This is something to control and exercise dominion over. And you investigate the language it's all there, mm -hmm. you see. So I derive my understanding of my appointment, my uh, assignment from this kind of understanding, you know, that the, the principal reality is the cultural one, not how you or I feel about our dying. That's the occasion, but it's not the context. The context is every one of our feelings we inherited. And that's a strange concept in North America because we imagine we feelings are the domain. We are the single regent exercising power over. And in actual fact, you're on the receiving end of any feeling you've ever had, and none of them are yours. And the language that it that it attends to them and that allows you to express them, this is all inherited. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the repertoire for dying is an inherited repertoire. The repertoire for refusing to die, similarly so, you see? And all of this adds up to what? What's your job? You must ask yourself a hundred different ways. I don't mean what's your employment, because this should, this should applies to many more people than those working in the death trade as, even as volunteers, uh, you know, or as supportive people. And um, I can't imagine how you can escape the understanding that you become a subversive, a Trojan horse activist. I don't say you do this at the expense of the sense of well-being of the people that you're sitting across from, so you turn them into an exercise in how radical you can be. I certainly don't mean that. I'm talking about this as an art form, fundamentally. And, and that means that the artistry of the thing is not in how cleverly you can craft an understanding as I've just tried to do. The artistry of the thing is how do you hold a fellow human being in deep and high regard and at the same time not be co-opted by their willingness to be okay? Mm -hmm. That asks an awful lot. And the calculus of it, you know, the kind of um, intuitive... Uh, 
understanding that you only have a few moments sometimes to choose your words well and to unfurl them now. It's a kind of, uh, uh, what were those guys? Uh, the, the, the Japanese guys? Uh, samurai. Sam, it's a samurai understanding that you draw the bow back for a hundred years, but you have to let the arrow go in a second. Mm -hmm. Or to use a more contemporary example, it's like trying to uh, apply a uh, epidural uh, to someone who's dancing or um, mm. or writhing, mm -hmm. you know. Maybe epidural is not the best because it, it it implies anesthetic. I I mean the precision of not paralyzing someone yeah, not to introduce awesome. something that could be helpful, mm -hmm. watching things fall for the sake of hearing the sound or feeling like I was effectual or of consequence. I'm using the word helpful. Uh, the problem with the word is it implies that there's a shared understanding what constitutes help. And this is not often the case. So that's part of what the work is, is to reconfigure an understanding of what could be useful. Do people know that that's really what they want? Is that why they keep asking you to go to places? <laughs> You'd have to ask them that. I, I, <laughs> well, what's your sense? You know, like, why are people still, why are you, I don't know. Why, is, why is this growing if your work is to go places and not offer assured assurance? Well, you know, that maybe mistakenly people figure that your unwillingness to reassure constitutes a new kind of fidelity, you know, a new kind of uh, um, achievement. Um, well, I've, I've been credited with that. I mean, people are kind often. Yes. You know, in a way you don't expect. And some of the kindness is, I've never thought anything like that before. And, you know, it's more than just not welcome. It's uh, otherworldly in some fashion. Does this feel like a recollection when I tell you, like I introduced you the other night and I said, part of the powerful experience I had talking to you last time we did is that when I left, I felt like I'd received responsibility in a way that I'd, I'd never received it before. Yeah. Yes. My way of saying what you just said is uh, I treat people like they're adults until they just adamantly insist that I'm wrong about that mm. you know and adulthood is not held in high regard in north america you see it just it just it, that's that mm -hmm. you know and i'm trying to do something about that too i suppose uh, simply by refusing to be seduced by an uh, let's say a neediness that's that you people lead with you know and if if that's where it starts then guess what your job becomes very very quickly to end the neediness and how you're going to do it and so on. So <clears throat> is that why you feel like you've moved out of the death trade more? Well, because you know, of that fact? Le leaving the death trade as an employee was first of all, not my idea. Well, sure. I guess, I mean, you said, and maybe I misunderstood, but the other day when I br brought you in, um, you mentioned that you find maybe with this new book that 
your work is less in the death trade than it has been doing die-wise and doing a lot of these talks and going to palliative care conferences and even coming to a show like mine? Subject-wise, yeah, obviously that'll change. But, you know, I'm the same guy with the same clutch of concerns and the same repertoire, generally. So it's not like I've just changed subject matters. It's, it's more than that. I mean, I'm concerned about, principally, about the world that uh, young people are inheriting as we, you and I are sitting here talking. Uh, that's the huge mobilizer. And that was not the case with the Die Wise material. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was concerned with the dying people now. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, the kids, uh, you know, the world. I mean, okay, let's I'll just put that on suspended animation for a minute because it's just a huge thing to begin to descend into. But the work, of, to my mind, if I address this thing, is to see whether or not the through line that occurred to me in the death trade, that my principal responsibility is a culturally derived responsibility and not a personal assurance responsibility, does it translate in the context of writing a book about what the hell happened to elderhood when we're awash in old people instead, you see? And here's here's the through line that occurred to me fairly early on. Yeah, we're awash in old people instead. That's what you said, right? Yeah, yes. old people instead. Right. Instead of more elderly. than ever. <laughs> yeah, more than ever. <laughs> so it's not, just, it's not as simple as cause and effect, but the parallel between the death trade and this new book is, I can say it in a line or two, and it goes like this. So we have more dying people than we've ever had because dying is being extended. And we have more death expertise, if you will, technologically, medically, and the rest, than we've ever had. Uh, this should translate into good dying because experience is generally trafficked in as the kind of crude form of wisdom. It hasn't been, you know, finely smelted out yet, but it's all there. We just trust inherently in this idea experience will translate into wisdom in about, give it an hour kind of thing, you know. And uh, nobody says that about trauma, but trauma is experience. But so you have this this critical mass of death alertness, is it translating into better dying? You know, it's a simple question. It's not a difficult thing to begin to ascertain. Okay. More death specific workers has not produced more death literacy in the culture. You can go the other direction pretty easily and begin to observe the more death workers you have, the more specializations in end-of-life care you have, the bigger problems you have. Because these are a consequence of the problems. They're not its solution. Okay? It's the, democrat- the democratization of the wisdom that's the antidote to the death phobia. Mm-hmm. It's not more death care specialists, you see. Mm-hmm. So what's the parallel to, uh, to the old people situation? More old people than we've ever had. Okay? That means more cumulative experience sitting there in the chair across the t- entire range of all the old folks' homes. So the old folks' homes should be bursting, shouldn't they? With well-tuned wisdom. Mm-hmm. And here's the big one. As a direct result of the critical mass of human wisdom that's available to us, we should be living an absolutely sustainable way of life. Mm-hmm. Direct derivation, one from the other. And of course, no. 
That is not what's happening. We have more old people than ever before. And the, the utter bankruptcy of our way of life is still not reason enough to change course. And this has all uh, ensued during the course of the aging of the people we're talking about, mm -hmm. who have been, sad to say, its principal beneficiaries. Okay? The people that came of age in the, in the 70s okay, have drawn down since then, now in their retirement or in their dotage or in their dying, yes. And the, the cumulative consequence of the life that they've lived is an observable rupture in the kind of cultural wisdom that induces elderhood as a function, not as an identity. I'm not talking about people's personalities here with elderhood. I'm talking about it as a verb, as a function. It's basically in abeyance now, okay? And uh, it's unspeakable. The poverty of this is utterly unspeakable. And if you think writing a book like Diewise is rather taxing, you know, just to remember the, the hardships and the mayhem and the, the frank malpractice and the, the, the kind of moral chicanery and so on. Writing a book about the, the, uh, the, the, disappear the visible disappearance of elderhood within essentially several generations is uh, so painful because uh, it's an incontrovertible inheritance, you see. So I've understood myself um, fairly reluctantly to be someone in these matters who is uh, in, in no way inhabiting a prophetic function, but rather uh, inhabiting the function of a crime scene uh, recorder. And that's, I think, what I do, is I come upon a crime scene and I, I chalk out the bodies on the highway. episode. Hope it's meaning a little something to you. I want to say a few words about our sponsor, Coracow Chocolate. If you haven't already used the code to go to coracowchocolate.com, then you definitely should do that now. Our code is chocolate20, the word chocolate and the number 20. You can go to their website uh, C-O-R-A-C-A-O chocolate.com I'll put their link in the liner notes to make it easy for you but go to the website and stock up on all their chocolate and you'll get 20% off and I can't say it enough I just got to get a little new batch of some of their Easter chocolates and I'm not even going to go into depth and detail about those cute little eggs and little bunnies it's just what you would expect, but classier and more thoughtfully made with great good intention to go with all the good ingredients that make this chocolate what it is. And I won't go into the details about the Easter chocolate or the holiday versions of things they make, because it's more important that whenever you're listening to this, you just know the chocolate's good. It could be another holiday now. I don't want you to get hung up on Easter. If you're hearing this this week when the episode releases, then yes, 
Go and get some damn Easter spring-themed chocolate as soon as possible. But also, if you're listening to this six months from now, which is very possible, there might be another holiday that connects to the chocolate at Coracao. And so then go then and use your chocolate two zero discount code. They choose South American Heirloom Cacao for its perfect balance of fruity, floral high notes and nutty undertones. And they source certified organic cacao from biodynamic farms that support lush, green, ecological diversity. And all of their farming partners are paid fair trade wages or above. A couple of my favorites, the Berkeley bars with caramel, nougat, and almonds covered in dark chocolate. And then another favorite, and I specifically, these are my two go-tos, the salted caramel bars with cashew butter caramel. It is rare to find delicious, decadent, gooey, creamy fillings that have minimally processed, easily pronounced real ingredients. And they continually search at Curacao for the absolute best quality organic ingredients on the planet. But as important as what they put in is what they leave out. Other chocolates have 20, I'm just saying other, okay, I'm not specifically naming any chocolate companies in the world, but other chocolates have 20 plus ingredients. The bars and truffles at Coracao chocolate contain an average of six ingredients. And all the ingredients are 100% certified organic and minimally processed. No artificial flavors, colors, or preservatives ever. So go to the website, coracalchocolate.com or coracalconfections.com. Go through the link in the liner notes and use your code CHOCOLATE20, fill your card up with hundreds of dollars of chocolate that you deserve, the sweet treats in life, and get your 20% off, and just say, hey, you're going to die, the podcast sent me. You don't have to say that. I think the code just lets them know, okay? Just go get your chocolate. Great. We do our little moments in the episode to kind of drop in and settle down. And this next segment, Scott put some of his own soundscaping magic to work and created a little container for a blessing that Stephen Jenkinson wrote. Actually had never heard this blessing, had never read this blessing before. But during one of our open mics, we do one every month. You're going to die. Poetry, prose, and everything goes. It's the third Thursday of every month on Zoom. You can come to the next one. But during one of these open mics, a friend, a new friend that that we've made through these online occurrences joined one of our open mics and read this blessing from Stephen Jenkinson. And so it felt really right to share it with you here and get it held by some of the sound magic that I love from Scott. I make a prayer now to your old ones, to those whose face you never saw, and voice you never heard, and name you haven't known, that they remember you while you try to find them remembering you, that they come at the proper time to gather you in, that they whisper to you the truth that you haven't been alone and won't be 
that they know the hard friendship of the ending of days. I make a prayer that all who were there at your making will be there for your gathering in, that their hands will be there just by your opening head, your little fountain, to make a home for your sorrowing heart and for you. I make a prayer that your house and your people will be blessed by your coming and your going, that the day will come when they will boast of for a while having known you and will marvel at the way of your going out from among them and that you might be reason enough for them to continue for a while and that in the days to come you will be claimed as noble as an ancestor worth coming from Okay, so, you know, we're not being clever. We're just trying to be faithful here. So, um, you know, the responsibility of the person who proposes to attend somebody in their dying is to be worthy of occupying the place, okay? To be worthy. That doesn't mean to be a good person. There's more to it than that. Or to be well-intended. I'm talking about a capacity to be so deeply informed uh, by the unwelcome aspects of life and an unwelcome understanding of the context, cultural context, that they're working in, you see? So that they have to understand themselves to be cultural workers in the death trade. Okay? And their professional designation, even unto and including, you know, family members and, and, and uh, volunteers and so on, all of this is very much secondary. The principal question one should wonder about is what are you there to do, okay? And what is this dying time for? And what does it ask of you? Not what you can you achieve in it, not what you can get out of it, not what you can be to the other person. So it's not really a question of examining your motivation. It's a question of examining, okay, I'll put it, the, the emphasis on the right syllable and say it this way. Dying is not a problem to solve, okay? Dying is a God. If dying is a God, then the fundamental question is one of, of all the words you could choose, etiquette. Okay, so what is the etiquette for pro approaching a divinity? And if you can come to that, then you can end up at the deathbed and be useful. Because that's what it is to me, all right? That you learn the ways of a... Of a of a divinity. I mean, this is this heavy freight now. Mm -hmm. You know, good luck in six weeks at hospice training mm -hmm. with that one, mm -hmm. with that assignment ringing six in your ears. Wow, I had a week. Okay, whatever it is. You know, <laughs> yeah. Six weeks, I guess, as being generous. So <clears throat> it's extraordinarily demanding, you know. Why? Anything particular about dying? Well, there is. What is it? 
if you entertain the prospect that um, that crunch time brings out the best in people, which is a conceit out there, at crunch time people will come through with the goods, right? Families will. Love will out will, and prevail. Will it, and all of that. Good judgment will set aside all of the things that screw it up normally and so on. Death is not one of those times. That's what I saw. Death is a normal time that brings out the normal. And it's devastating to normal out when somebody's dying. Usually only seeing it in hindsight. Absolutely devastating that your best shit was nowhere to be found. Okay? But your go-to shit was. Okay, that's habit we're talking about. So I come back to the, the, the divinity understanding and say, you try... First of all, you have to, you have to entertain the prospect there's such a thing as divinity. And, you know, good luck with that one in a desecrated world. But um, just try to approach the throne of a, divini- of a divine something and, say, and, and do this. So, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Just imagine yourself saying it, mm. right? Imagine being, you know, approaching anything that you think is worthy of, of, a, of a respect that you yourself feel incapable of coming to. And then that casual thing, you know, just for engagement. Is, okay. Because that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. But this is a throne you're approaching. So it requires a little bending, you know, of the neck, uh, you know, and assuming a position of, of humility in the face of a vast mystery. You can't prepare to engage in mystery, if you understand preparation to be something that demystifies what you're coming to learn about and to serve, okay? Preparation for an engagement with mystery is mystifying, <laughs> right? Okay, so you're, you're re-mythologizing your understanding what life is. You're re, you become a, an, another, sorry, you become an animist, in a fundamental way that, has, that the modern era seduces you away from. You know, we grant soul to certain orders of life, don't we? But certainly to nothing made. We got that, thank you, thank you uh, monotheisms of all stripes. No, nothing made has a soul. Uh, and some, even some of the makers, it's iffy. Uh, you know, so my God, the list of who gets to have a soul is fairly narrow. And so when I'm talking about Remythologizing, and I used words like desecration and so forth. I mean, this is, you know, you can hear my so-called uh, divinity school education here in some fashion, but I'm employing it to say, no, things are much worse than anybody imagines. We're, we're in a time that practices desecration and calls it a respect for the individual, you know, and their personal belief system and so on. But most people died minus any belief system. I'm telling you. Okay, and, and the belief system they may have had was not derived from or informed by any reality of dying. It was all turned to in times of trouble as an antidote to those realities, like a shield, like a sword, you see? So what kind of belief system is it that you die with that was designed to make sure you wouldn't really die? Or there's no reality called dying. Mm-hmm. There's just transition or whatever it is. So there, there's your practice arena, mm-hmm. you see? And so who are you? 
and and people would say, well, who are you to, you know, I used to get that all the time. Who are you to say? Who are you to call into question? Who are, and I, You don't get that anymore? No, I don't get it anymore, no. Um, I, I never said this often, but I thought it frequently. If I'd stayed there long enough, I would have started saying it. I, who are you to, to say, you know, what good dying is? And I would have ended up saying, I waited for you to do it, okay? And I'm not waiting anymore. That's the answer. I waited for you to do it. It's not like I just came out of the chute saying, I got this. I waited, man. I was in the bushes for a long time. I practiced what Dylan said. Learn your song well before you start singing. Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. But I'm singing now. And I take my cue from my countrymen. And what did he say? He said, they sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. But I'm coming now. I'm coming to reward them. First we take Manhattan, and then we take Berlin. And that's my marching orders. Sounds a little self-important? Yep. Try to do it. You try to do it without a sense of self-importance. Just try it. They eat you alive as you self-doubt yourself from one gig to the next. You know, I call that humility. People deserve somebody who can try to stand and deliver. Yes, they deserve their successes, but they deserve their frailties too. You know, my personal frailties are not besides the point. Right? Yes, I'm five foot seven and a half. It's not easy to occupy room in a contentious you know, I don't have the stature, right? I don't have the, 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 the associative credibilities, all those things. But why aren't, why aren't I getting that old teardown that I used to get? Well, I think something happens when you get a little older, maybe. They just give up on um, trying to remind you that you're nobody. Maybe that's what happens. Or maybe the particular transient notoriety that accrues to me now makes it very difficult for somebody to accuse me of being nobody for a while. You know, may, I don't know. But uh, as long as I'm granted a little bit of a pass, which is kind of happening for a while now, I'm happy to employ that. Not rest on it, you know, but to employ it and say, well, I'm in the house. Okay, I, I sh it's not the time for me to question whether or not I deserve to be in the house. You've asked me to come. I'll presume like you knew what you were doing. And I will, I'll be informed by that and to a certain degree by encouraged by it. trade was chronically asked more of dying people as a result of the fact that they were dying. And it was so counterintuitive. I mean, people took offense, of course, mis misconstrued it more or less will willfully, and insisted that this was um, tyrannous, you know, and absolutely indefensible. And I said, and the only answer I can think of is, well, we've all watched you ask less and less of them as they're dying. 
do you not understand what it does to their understanding of to what degree they're still in the land of the living? It nullifies it. You wouldn't do it to any other citizen. Ask less and less of them because they are. Would you? you even in physical rehabilitation, what do you do to an injured joint? You ask more of it, and I mean, in a measured way, obviously, but you're, if you under-function around the injured joint, guess what it'll be in 10 years? Mm -hmm. A crippled joint, will it not? Okay, but what do we do with dying people? Ask less and less of them because it's already too hard. And they cease to be present amongst the living as a consequence of this compassion. Mm, yeah. You know, I do this work now at UCSF, and I go in and I, I, I uh, do creative writing with patients. And um, usually I come in and ask them a few questions about what hope looks like and um, what they want to say to their doctors, things like that. But, but that's sort of beside the point. What I've noticed in there, and, and maybe what you're speaking to, maybe this is a little of what happens is, there, there's a shift when I'm in the room asking them those questions and don't get me, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's me. I'm actually just doing this work, you know, but what's different from everybody else that's come into that room is that what their experience is, is maybe a realization in the moment when I am talking to them and asking them these questions for this book, that's an offering to other patients to come is that, that that's why they're there. Sorry, that what's why they're there, that why they're there. Yeah. Is because there will be people after them that are also there. Oh, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Does that does that feel like a sort of a version of what you're speaking to when a person's like dying or going through cancer or whatever it is? That part of it is the responsibility of doing that thing and being that thing because that's your work, and that that you doing that is an offering. It's not like a meaningless thing that you've been thrown into that all these doctors and nurses and needles and machines are like floating around and just trying to move you out. It's actually like that is your act. That is your your job. Yeah. My phrase to, to, to mm -hmm. carry what you've described <laughs> better, it, I'm not surprised there's yeah, a better way to say would be, it. I call it a village-mindedness. I mean, very few people live in an ongoing village. Okay. Usually there's too many people around. But the biggest reason that most people don't live in a village is because most people aren't capable of it. Because that's a, that's a skillfulness. It's not a consequence of how many people are around you. Right? So village-mindedness means, to me, you have a regard for a couple of things that are a little unusual in the current regime. One of them is you have regard for your fellows. Two, you have a regard for those people who've come before you. Three, you have a regard for those people who will come after you. Four, you have a regard for this world where all of this is taking place. And these regards are manifest in how you proceed. That's the, that's the citizenship of village-mindedness to my mind. So um, it's, I mean, I like the characterization as you used it as a job. Certainly it's a job, and it should be understood in those terms, too, because it's a daily enterprise. You know, it's not a high-end uh, spect spectacle enterprise. But uh, the great poverty that I've encountered, no doubt you have, too. A lot of people listening have as well, probably, that, um, that this has been um, devolved. This village-mindedness has been devolved to an understanding of of the, the crippledness of dependence and codependence.
That's the language that disqualifies it, you see. And the language of autonomy and competence and capacity uh, comes in the back door. And this is the God. And that's the moral order. And then you look at the quality of life inventories that are employed in the death trade. And you ask yourself, what's the understanding of life that they're predicated upon? And the answer is autonomy and capacity. Okay, they're the gods that are served by these quality of life things. How about quality of death? does not revolve around your autonomy. It revolves around your capacity to not be autonomous. That's where the, the good aspect of your death is to be found, in how you are able to lean upon those around you, since you are a leaning one now. That's your principal arc, you know, that's your arc, to lean, right? And to burden those around you. And you think, I'm sure you've heard this many times, you think about what a dying person's principal concern is re regarding their loved ones is becoming a burden of all the things that you would wish were otherwise for you to have less and less consequence as you die in the lives of your loved ones by not being a burden I can tell you this that the demand for euthanasia then and now I'm quite certain will come to this I want you to take me out before I become too much of a burden to the people around me. Mm -hmm. This is the mobilizing force for you. Mostly, think. yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But where does it come from? From an authentic understanding of what love is? Are you kidding me? No, it comes from a fear of the standards of the day regarding autonomy and competence and mastery slipping. That's where it comes from. Like the only time we're able, where we're legitimately burdening other people is when we're utterly friggin incapacitated mm. that's it mm. well that's not village mindedness that's a collapse of your ability to be self-directed and of course north americans uh, are a uh, principal uh, principally guilty in the world as vectors for sending this out as uh, personal competence and the rest that that kind of standard so it's no surprise that you're writhing around on this dignity debate and the dignity indicator comes down to who wipes who in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, yikes. You know, uh, you, you could almost start just chuckling over the, the ludicrousness of... Ha I'm not saying, by the way, that not being able to be in the bathroom by yourself is a lark. It isn't a lark. You think about the, the, the ridiculous emphasis we place on toilet training and then, you know, fast forward 75 years. How do you think it's going to be? Mm -hmm. I'm, not I'm not making light of it. I'm simply saying dying is a time for recalibrating what you think dignity is. Mm -hmm. And it should not be related to autonomy. Mm -hmm. That's a North American weirdness, man. Mm -hmm. You know, your capacity to be... Um, Autonomy afflicted and then autonomy free. Like being hope free. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about you re-understand competence now as your capacity to lean on people. And you'd understand leaning on people to be something that only moral and physical collapse uh, justifies. Because how does anyone feel useful in your life as long as you're autonomous, as long as you're doing fine. And then, then the whole architecture is the only time you get to have a meaningful part to play in somebody else's life is when they collapse. 
what, a, what an impoverished arrangement it is, you see. And this is where my understanding of my work came from. From seeing these things, you know, seeing what it did to people to be hopeful. They weren't allowed to occupy the time that they were in. They had to hope for another time. If you want to find out more about Stephen Jenkinson and his work, check out his documentaries, read his literature, which I highly recommend, Die Wise, especially important book for me, and his history and story working in healthcare, in the death and dying conversation in palliative care, and just kind of figuring out that there's other places he needs to do what he he does and so orphan wisdom school we'll have the link up in the liner notes if you want to get to him through there nick jana hi nick jana producer and soundscaper sound engineer extraordinaire good to be chatting with you how was well how was this episode for you how was being with this content it was really cool. I didn't know anything about Stephen Jenkinson before I opened up the sound file and started listening to it. And so it just got all my contextual clues from what he was saying mm. and quickly realized how the, the depth and the purpose of what he was saying. I particularly responded to what he was saying about eldership. It's a thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately as I you know move through my middle age and just think, what is the purpose of life, <laughs> you know, like what are goals in the second half of life? And I think eldership is a great way to look at that. And just the thing that he said, I don't remember the exact words, but you know, something about we're awash in older people and we have no elders. And I think that is great to connect to the, you're going to die ethos because it's not just about the act of death. It's about getting older and just the purpose of life. And just for me, that, anti-capitalistic uh, movement towards why are we living? Is it just to collect all the money and retire in a house and be protected and safe behind a gate? Or is it to offer some mentorship, something that carries on to the community, you know? Yeah. Yeah, actually, you remind me that it's worth mentioning his, I think probably his most recent book is called Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And I know in the conversation we had with him, he's that's what he's referencing, especially in his work, engaging with the elderhood uh, in our culture in this time. It takes some modeling, like not runway modeling, but <laughs> modeling, <laughs> okay, of, I wasn't sure. modeling of a behavior, you know, like mentorship works, not just in the things that it imparts, but showing that a mentor is valuable and an elder is valuable. And if you grow up without that, you just think, okay, I'm just on my own from adulthood on. And the only thing I know how to do is that keeps me safe is getting a lot of money. So I'm going to do that. Part of what I feel and have admitted with Stephen Jenkinson is the, the sense that he's asking me to take responsibility for being someone who can do that and that we're not getting asked enough to do that. Yeah. Would you like to hear a review? Yeah, what do we got? this podcast? Mm. Yeah, no. Do you have a review from just something else, Rihanna? <laughs> okay, okay. Great. Uh, this, is a, this is a long one. Okay. Wow. In. 
Mm-hmm. Brew, brew a cup of joe. Oh, you, do you want me to <laughs> go brew a coffee? <laughs> this is uh, from Draco Aquarius. What a wonderful way to celebrate death and ultimately life. One That's star. It. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What else can be said? Uh, so uh, podcast reviews are a great way to help this podcast. Just go to Apple Podcast. Google it, I say. If you don't have the app, just Google it. <laughs> well, hey, well, this is important. This is good. Should, can we, can, I'd like the Google it. There's a link though. We should just make it a link and put it, oh, yeah. drop it. That's, That's what we'll a do. good idea. <laughs> okay. So we, we're going to, in the liner notes, people, you, you're, mm. we're going to give you a direct link to the Apple podcast review option. And it does require you to create a, a, a handle. Mm-hmm. I don't think it requires very much information. No. We're not talking more than a few minutes and you can no. leave as short a review as Draco's, but we will put that link in the liner notes and make it as easy as possible for you to get us over a hundred reviews. We're at 95 reviews right now. Help us get over a hundred. That's a great idea. So you can go do that. Uh, you can uh, sign up at the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash YG2D. We're going to start offering some extra things. I sometimes make little sound collages with the interviews that I'll put up. We're going to put up the entire uh, whole unedited Stephen Jenkinson conversation. If you want to hear the whole thing, I think it's like twice as long at least. Um, and uh, let's see, another way to do to support the podcast is to just tell one person. I... I did this uh, for a show last week, the uh, a You're Gonna Die show. I was having one of those days where I was frustrated with the way the algorithm seems to swat down anything <laughs> that points to life outside of <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> yes, um, we know this to be true. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll just go back to texting. And so I texted like 10 people about this show and like eight of them came and two of them said, I'm so sorry, I can't come, you know? And uh, it was so such a good reminder that texts, personal text, sincere personal text, not just a copy paste text, but like, a, hey, man, how you doing? Check this out. I think you'd like it. You know, that makes was for a, the open mic. Makes a big difference for the open mic. Yeah. Yeah. But it works the same for a podcast. Just totally. Say, I, I think you'd love this podcast and, and put a link in there. You know, what else do you need to say? Just just put it in a text and articulate it in your words to someone you care about that would feel the same way and and you know, give them this little, little audio gift. What a great way to ask someone to be your elder. Ooh, <laughs> really up level. Will you be my elder? <laughs> That's it. Re- Will you be refer my elder? to this episode. Apple podcast. Like, no, no. Will you be my elder? We need to have like a Valentine's oh, Day, yeah. but an elderhood day where it's like, will you be my oh, elder? Oh, that's a great elder. idea. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Scott. Uh, thanks to Stephen Jenkinson and um, his work in the world. And thanks to all of you, future elders, for listening and spending part of your great long lifetime before you're old with us here on You're Going to Die, the podcast. You'll hear us next time. <laughs> I got it. That's it. You'll hear us next time. Yes. Bye, everybody. Bye.